listeners, welcome to The S Word. I'm your host, Megan Christou. And I'm the producer, Amelia Garska. Together, we represent Opsu Sufpo Young Workers. We are bringing issues that affect young workers to the table to discuss, analyze, and strategize. Megan, since our last podcast, we were talking about how your workplace has miraculously got a 90% strike vote. Oh, even better than that. So um, bargaining went great, so great that we took a strike vote and um, we had 98.4% in support of a strike vote, um, which is incredible, but that's also not unheard of. Uh, There's been so many unions, especially this past year, that have taken a strike vote with a really high mandate from their membership to fight for them and go on strike. Um, And that's going to actually really tie in today with our guest. And I'm super excited to introduce her. But first, we might sound a little different, listeners. This is the very first time that we are recording from not just one territory, but we're recording from three different territories. So for those of you who remember, I live in Toronto. I work in Toronto. So I am um, on the territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit and the Anishinaabeg and the Chippewa and the Haudenosaunee and the Wendat peoples. But of course, Toronto is a super diverse city. So we have many Métis people and Inuit people, and as well as so many other First Nation folks here that call Toronto home. Amelia, you are also calling in from a different territory. Where are you calling in from? I'm calling in from Thunder Bay, which is the traditional territory of the Anishbek, which includes the Ojibwa of Fort William First Nation, signatory to the Robinson Superior Treaty of 1850. Yeah, so if uh, you're not familiar with the distance, uh, Toronto to Thunder Bay, I've been considering driving it. Amelia highly recommends. It's a, it's just a breezy 14-hour no breaks in, for the bathroom. But this podcast isn't just for young workers in Ontario. It's also for young workers in Canada and abroad. And we're super excited to have Jessica Degasso here with us today. And Jessica, I got to meet, and Amelia as well, got to meet her at the Canadian Labour Congress, which was held in Montreal this past May, when Jessica ran for the Young Worker Vice President seat. Uh, Jessica, could you let us know where you're calling in from today? Of course. I am from Nanaimo, which is the traditional and unceded territory of the Coast Salish people and the traditional territory of the Sunamuk First Nations. That's awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. We're excited. You're our first, uh, I don't know, would this be a Trans-Canada interview? I think so. I'm Uh, very excited to be here today. (laughs) Awesome. So, Jessica is a part of PSAC, which is the Public Service Alliance of Canada. And um, I'm going to ask her a bit more about her story and it will reveal itself here for you. So, Jessica, where do you work and um, who's your employer and how long have you worked for them? Or at least how long have you been in PSAC? 
For sure. Um, I actually work at Service Canada and my component is uh, CEIU, which is the Canada Employment and Immigration Union. And I've just worked there for about a year and a half now, which has been very eventful. Um, and then before that, I actually worked with BCGEU for a couple of years. Um, but recently, PSAC has been my home and I have done a lot of things. I am also now our BC Young Worker Coordinator for PSAC, um, and I'm my local president as well. Oh my goodness, you sound like you've rocketed, so that is a crazy year and a half. And we often say as young workers that that's sort of how it happens. Uh, just a year and a half ago for myself, I joined my like my first union activity was joining the health and like safety rep list uh and now i'm doing this so can you tell us a little bit about that journey like that is kind of a rocket ship path um you first got your job you were already familiar with unions obviously from being in bcgu um so like what does that look like you start working how do you get involved with the union? Um, well, yeah. So like I said, I was uh, a shop steward at, with BCGU uh, it was through the pandemic. So I didn't get too involved because everything was very shut down. Um, but my family does have a pretty big history of union activism. So it's not too far of a stretch for me. So as soon as I um, hit the ground, we went to our AGM. That was only a month in. And I got voluntold, as many of us do, into the young worker uh, representative position at our AGM. And I did that for a year until I ran for president, uh, which was unchallenged, and everyone was very happy to have me there. And my goal has just been kind of to get involved as possible. Um, and we, of course, had our strike, and that really had a huge impact on me getting involved in just another level because I was full stop, just everything I could do, uh, middle of the strike, you know, it was 12 hour days, it was so much fun. And that has really led into kind of the larger titles, um, such as running at the Canada Labour Congress for that national position. So when you became president, um, you said it was unchallenged. So what did the executive look like before? Was there just like not much going on? Um, no, we had an executive. Um, our workplace in particular uh, is very union friendly, which is kind of an anomaly, I feel like. Um, but most of our managers and bosses actually come from the executive. Um, so we've had a history of really strong executives at our local. However, through the pandemic, um, it, we went all from I wasn't there, but everyone went from being in person to being online, which really changed that environment. Um, and it didn't completely fall apart, but it was a lot less strong than it had been in previous years. Um, and when I joined, I, because of my background already, I was like, oh, and we can do this. And did you know we should do this? And hey, we should do that till eventually they're like, you should be doing this. <laughs> so uh, at the AGM, it was like, thank goodness. Um, and it was right before the strike too. So I think I really lucked out with the timing of it because we had our AGM and then the next month, and a half we went into strike so it was uh, good timing I think. So is that really the driving force for being uh, your local president was you just are brimming with ideas and you're like ah, I'm so excited we need to do all this and inevitably you realize oh 
I am going to have to spearhead this. <laughs> I'm going to be the one to do some of this and not for, you know, pe other people not stepping up. Like sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes you just need that person mm -hmm. who's so ambitiously driven and has so many ideas. Like, was that really why you decided to be local president? I wish it was that noble. Uh, it's a little more selfish than that. Um, I really wanted to go to the events. I really wanted to go to conferences. I really wanted to get out of work. Um, and I was having a lot of hard time getting to the events that I wanted to get to. And um, when you're in these positions, you get to go to more events. And I also, my internal justice was just on fire because I was like, this is unfair. These are barriers. Uh, we shouldn't be experiencing barriers for young people who want to become involved. You have so much lip service for this. Like, why isn't it happening? So part of it was just a straight rage of, um, I want to see this change and I want to see something happen. Um, and sometimes you have to just kind of be a bit of a pusher to get to those places. Um, and I'm in a very privileged position where I know what that looks like, where a lot of people don't. And that in and of itself is such a huge barrier. I mean, that's an amazing uh, story, regardless, I think, you know, noble or not, I think it's still noble. Uh, <laughs> but uh, maybe less naive uh, as what I was projecting it. I think that's you know, it's so true. Like there are so many opportunities purported, you know, to be advertised to young workers. Mm -hmm. But the fact that you had to sort of like take the reins of leadership to ensure that those opportunities could be taken by yourself. Um, you know, that's another that's another story. But I must say, I think it works out in the end because I love seeing young worker local presidents. Um, you know, and, and I think like there's a bit of, uh, you know, mentorship that happens because we've had to learn on the fly, but we want to impart that knowledge to the next folks that want to do it. Um, I think we're more keen to sort of have that um, thorough line through the local and the union to sort of keep it militant. So, yeah, I'm very uh, hyped to have another young worker local president. Um, that's my future goal, uh, but we'll see. So you should definitely do it. <laughs> do it, do it, do it, do it. Well, I'm in a different position where my exec likes being the exec. So I have mm -hmm. to figure out, um, how to navigate it without, um, creating any like, yeah, just like negative tension. Cause it's not about that. Right. It's about, yeah. Yeah, for I think the same, like just lots of ideas, uh, lots of energy to do stuff. And I think I should you be know, given the chance. You know, I think that's kind of where I'm, I come off a little bit different because I do kind of think sometimes you do have to stir the pot a little bit. And there is this like, uh, you know, it's been referred to the old boys club, but it's not just the old boys club because there's definitely women that do that too, but they're very comfortable in those positions. Cause like I said, you gotta go and do things. There are a lot of perks, but I think if you're getting those perks, you need to also be putting in the work. And the thing with unions is I really believe in that core goal of unifying the workforce to bring everyone up and to successfully do that you have to bring in other people you can't have it be a closed door um, and if that's something that you really believe in I think it's fair to go and challenge that and say hey I really want this I really want other people to do this I want to know the process I want to know how you can do it I want to know how I can get there and really be at their doorstep and be like hey this is I'm here I'm here I'm here until you know finally they will they will do something yeah, honestly, that's like such good advice because, you know, we have in my local, we are composite local and the other local is, I think, all young people like under the age of 
35, definitely a lot of them under the age of 30. And no one's helping them for my executive because they're at another workplace, at another location. Um, they're not under the same employer. Um, we're just in a in the same field. And they're really small. So they're kind of little potatoes. But I feel like, you know, they're being a- abandoned a little bit um, because they are only maybe 20 people, um, small mm-hmm. place. So um, I've been the one reaching out to them just in as, as a steward for my workplace because mm-hmm. I don't want them to feel alone. Um, and I'm like, well, that this is the president's job. <laughs> I'm <Yeah>. doing the <laughs> president's job right now. Well, I might yes. as well be local president. I um, agree. I agree. Yeah. You should be. <laughs> <laughs> so I know we're itching and we're brimming for it. So it probably will take up a lot of time because like I mentioned earlier, might be going on strike. What does that look like? How did it all play out for PSAC? It was a massive news story. We were all following it so closely, at least in my workplace. Um, It was sort of very compelling to watch. Um, So maybe you can tell us a bit about that because that would have happened, like you said, quite quickly after you were elected local president. Yeah, um, I definitely have a ton to talk about on this. So like I said, I was elected the local president. And then once I did that, I was then again uh, voluntold by the family a little bit to take over um, and actually be a strike coordinator on top of that. So I also became originally just the North Island um, and then I became also the mid, so the North and Mid Island Coordinator for Vancouver Island, BC, which is uh, encompassed eight cities. So I definitely did have a lot of running around, uh, a lot of really great experiences, but also things that I would definitely do different the next time. Um, but overall, for me as a young person, it was extremely exciting because we haven't seen anything really like this um, in our lifetimes for the most part. Um so I have a question. Really, yeah. Okay. So I've heard of a strike captain, but a strike coordinator, like yeah. you're in a federal union. So that's a lot different than what we at OPSU CEFPO are um, in a provincial union. So as a strike coordinator, like you have way more people, I'm assuming that you're working with, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. Let me break down the structure a little bit. So um, we have the members who are on strike and then we had our picket captains which were responsible for shifts and then we had our strike captains which were responsible for a certain location uh, for a picket line and then we had the coordinators and the coordinators worked with all the uh, strike captains um, to liaison between the actual PSAC staff um, and kind of uh, the regional leadership and national leadership um, down to make sure that everything was running smoothly and make sure they had supplies and make sure they weren't having any legal issues um, and to make sure that, you know, all the timesheets were sent in and, and kind of just overseeing all of that. So I'm going to rewind a little bit then with your workplace specifically, like what was the mood when that strike vote was taken? Like, did you all know, 
I guess there's so many different ways that a strike vote can be taken. Some people take a strike vote right before bargaining. It's a it's a very bold power move, but but it's a move. Uh, in our case, we took a strike vote before going to conciliation, essentially mediation with the labor board, and that was to sort of compel uh, the employer. You know, this is this is what'll happen if we can't come to an agreement. Um, so in PSAC's case, like when was that strike? vote taken? Was it taken after uh, bargaining negotiations couldn't be resolved? And what was the mood in the workplace uh, after the results of that strike vote? Um, So yeah, so we did try to bargain and negotiate. um, And we, I guess not me myself, but PSAC did look at hosting a strike during the pandemic, um, because our bargaining has been going on for quite some time. Uh, If we were doing a three-year contract, which we ended up landing on a four, we would have been out of a contract again and back to negotiating uh, next year. Wow. So we have been negotiating for quite some time. And um, with the, they did consider it during the strike, but as we're public servants, they said that would be unethical to Canadians at this time. So they didn't call a strike at that time and they decided to continue to try to bargain. Um, But it really was not going anywhere. Uh, The bargaining members that I talked to, they said, you know, they would fly out, wait a week out in Ottawa uh, where they had to meet the employer only to get a five minute meeting and have to fly back. So it was just a complete complete standstill. Um, And then for how people felt about it, it was really hard to judge because everyone was working from home. So we were very isolated in all of that. So I think a lot of people, myself included, were just like, oh, we're doing this. Are you sure we're doing this? I don't know. (laughs) Because it was really isolating for a lot of people. Um, So we did end up having quite a high strike vote. Uh, I don't think they released official numbers as part of our bargaining strategy, but it was over 80% and voted yes for the strike. Um, And I don't think a lot of people really believed it until we didn't go to work. (laughs) Like it was a very last minute um, feeling and there was a lot of uncertainty and there was a lot of, yeah, just a lot of people just not really knowing what to do, what it looks like. There was a lot of confusion. What about my pay? What about my, what we call away days uh, where you make up hours and take another day off? And what does that look like? But I think by the end, um, my personal experience on the island was that Every day that went by, people got more and more into the routine and we got more comfortable and got to know each other because we were in person again, too. Um, And we really built a lot of great bonds as the days went on. So what did that mobilization look like? You know, so the vote was taken, the results of your vote are sort of out, like at least, you know, members know that they're striking. Okay, they're confused. So how did you mobilize and educate these members to prepare them for going on the picket? Um, Yeah, PSAC has some really cool um, technological things that we use. And I do actually think they gave a presentation on it at the Canada Labour Congress, um, because we have a really great online database that all of our members are connected to, um, where their information can be updated. And we send out email lists and even text messages. And then we also used a picket finder. So because we're all working from home, uh, you might be working, say, in Vancouver, but technically you're living um, in Tofino, which is, you know, on the island and quite far away. 
So people were allowed to go to picket lines near their house, not necessarily near their work. So it was organized quite a bit differently um, because of the nature of our work changing so much. So people were able to put in their address and find the nearest picket line to them and head out to that picket line. And we used apps for people to sign in with their um, with their PSAC ID number so that they could be scanned in and scanned out um, to make sure that they were there for their their four-hour shift and make sure that everyone got their strike pay, which was another huge topic. That's actually really cool because I think some of the um, questions that people talk about, um, or sorry, that people raise when they talk about um, like organizing gig workers or organizing um, tech workers is the fact that, you know, these people are spread out geographically. Like how do we, how would you even organize them for a strike? And I think PSAC sort of showed us that like it is possible and we have tools at our disposal um, to do it. So by picketing at a location close to your home, even though you might work somewhere else um, really worked. And then the public, I believe, could even use the picket finder because I remember using the picket finder to find the nearest PSAC strike to me in Toronto. Um, And that was really cool. So other unions could stand in solidarity with PSAC by simply just dropping in the link, like find a picket and go visit. Um, And that was quite a neat tool. So it was really cool to see the mobilization play out. Um, So you just left off before I rudely interrupted you about strike pay. What were the conversations around strike pay? I feel like that's definitely going to be something I encounter. Yes. Oh my goodness. It was and still is right now such a huge hot topic. Um, And I think it was one of the things that was, uh, I'm going to say for me personally, um, was the most difficult for members in my experience of, of, you know, at local president level and also at the, you know, larger kind of regional level. um, Because we had... Uh, PSAC, which is kind of the overarching union that we're all under that umbrella, um, they had strike pay. And then we had components pay, but components top ups were different depending on your component, depending on their finances. Um, You know, some were getting $75 a day just from their component where some were getting none. And then we also had local level top ups too. So as a local president, um, I was also issuing top up payments to my local. Um, And I think people got really confused between the three levels and like where that pay was coming from and how come someone got more and and someone else got less. Um, But all of that stuff has been voted on far prior. And we saw such an uptake in uh, people participating and wanting to understand how all of this was working. Um, But where really a lot of the stuff gets sets up like years before we you actually go on the picket line. Wow. I mean, there's so many moving parts, uh, especially when it's a big national union. It seems very overwhelming uh, <laughs> to try to explain and educate to membership about how that all works, especially if it's all, you know, planned and, uh, you know, I guess designated beforehand. Um, 
So, all right, we've got kind of the first uh, part of what a strike looks like. Let's get into the nitty gritty, being on the line. So you folks are all out in person again. Um, I'm assuming your picket lines are in the front of some of your workplaces, even though lots of you probably work uh, remotely or hybrid. But I also know that hybrid work was a big issue for PSAC workers. So maybe that's the better question to start with. What were members... Um, issues. Uh, what did the bargaining survey sort of look like if you knew some of those results and can talk about them? I don't, because it bargaining demands came in long before I like pre, before I was even close to that. So I just know what the end results um, much more were and what people in my area were really concerned with. Um, and again, like I said, I work from Service Canada and I work kind of in the background uh, in employment insurance and I don't do any client facing. So we're fine to work from home and it's been working great and it's been shown to be working great. Um, but we also have people like the fisheries, for example, where they never got to go home um, and they were still on the field. So it, it actually caused a really big divide um, at certain points. And I think the employer was trying to use that because it was such a big deal. For example, um, one of my friends at work, she has three kids and she would have to quit her job if she has to return back to the office because there's a two-year wait on childcare. Um, so for her, that's an extremely big issue. But for the fisheries officers where they never left the workplace, that, you know, that wasn't something that they cared about as much because it didn't directly affect them. So it was hard in such a large union um, to stay united on some of those on that issue particular um, wages of course is a, another one that I think we can all kind of agree with um, but we also have some of the lowest paid uh, federal workers in the government um, again at the service Canada centers and, and generally women um, and you know when you give them a percentage raise it's not as much as the scientists when they get their percentage raise so that was also a little bit of point of con contention because we have such a diverse group that's really interesting yeah wages I think is the reason why many of our strike votes over the past few years have been so high um, and successful yeah so now I can uh, get a little bit to the picket line itself. So yeah, you wake up, then what? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a little bit different than me being the coordinator because I was not on a specific picket line, um, but I am the local president. So I did have one a little closer to my heart, which was in Nanaimo. Um, but I did have, originally my uncle was also one of the strike coordinators for the Mid-Islands, but it ran really, really well with him just staying in the Nanaimo um, picket line because it is kind of the largest city in our area that we had um, and we did go out in front of the service Canada center um, and my local in particular um, we ended up doing shifts which I think was a worked really well, um, but it was not something that was put out by our regional that we had to do. Originally, it was just the information put out was show up anytime between these hours for any four hour period. But what happened was everyone would show up all at the same time and then try and leave. And that was something they had a bigger issue with, um, say, in Victoria. But in my area, um, I kind of saw that coming and I got everyone the very first day, everyone's showing up at 7 a.m. And we have sign up sheets. You pick a shift that you're going to commit to. Um, and we made, you know, of course we made accommodations. If you have to drop your kid off, you know, come at a later date, but that way we kind of spread people out a little bit further to make sure that we covered our whole day. Um, and with the service Canada, scab workers was not a huge concern 
for us that we could address on the picket line because they worked from home. So there wasn't really people crossing our picket line in the same traditional way that it has happened before. Um, so we kind of narrowed our time frame because I know some places they will have it, you know, an hour before shop opens and an hour after to make sure they catch any scabs where that didn't necessarily work for us. So we were quite flexible. I think by the end, we kind of closed everything down by like four o'clock um, because it just worked for our members the best. Oh, that's so convenient. I have a feeling in order to prevent scab labor at my workplace, I'm going to have to sleep outside, <laughs> which I honestly will do. I don't care. Um, it would make my employer feel so bad. Um, <laughs> so you, you're coordinating. So you're working from home quite often, like courting with all these different folks. Did you get out to the picket line being the local president? Yeah, well, I did more than that. Um, I actually wasn't at home much. I actually drove to all the different picket lines because... Oh, how many um, miles did you rack up? Thousands, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> um, still waiting on the expense back for that. But um, no, it was so much fun because I, in that moment, um, I was signed up to it pretty late because the person that was in the coordinator position, they had to step down last minute for personal reasons. So I took over pretty much a week before the strike. Um, and that is not really a position you want to take over a week before. Um, and in Vancouver Islands, some of these, like Nanaimo is a fairly large city, but we also had like Powell River, um, which is actually on the mainland. So we have to take a, an hour and a half ferry out there. Um, wow. And it's a really small community. Same with our, you know, we had one in Uculet. We had four people out there. Um, we had Port Alberni, which uh, again, just, you know, I, th I actually only thought there'd be two people, but it turns out there was closer to 40 people, which is crazy. Um, and Port Hardy, which is, I think, like an eight-hour drive from Nanaimo. And again, only a couple people. So I made it to everywhere but Port Hardy. Um, and I personally delivered the strike boxes because we had... Yeah, this was really cool. So we had um, a box delivered for each strike location. And in that box, we had vests to identify the strike captains and the picket captains um we had a manual of just kind of like general information that people should know uh in terms of you know who do you call if there's the police uh are bugging you we have a dedicated police officer actually i think it's in all of canada but definitely bc that specializes in strike law um that you could call and refer to um and then there was all the like sign up materials and things like that so that went out to each picket line um, and I personally delivered the majority of that um, and like you said mobilizing was hard work from home nobody really knew what was up and I had just taken it over so I figured by physically going to the location I could point at someone and say you're I'm voluntolling you here's the box here's what you're going to do um, and I think people really appreciated that too because it was such a time of uncertainty and it was amazing just seeing people step up and be like okay yeah we're, I, we're doing this um, and really taking that initiative on it was was honestly one of my highlights of the strike. That's so true. I think like oftentimes that's all folks need is you to look them in the eyes and say, I need your help. Yes. <laughs> and then we go, okay. And, and off to the races. Um, you know, I think we forget that human interaction, that emotion of, you know, solidarity. We are in this together, but I need your help. Um, you know, is I think that's the key. I think it's about accountability too. I um, it's something that has really stuck with me this year is accountability, and I think by seeing someone 
it's not even it doesn't even have to be in person, but really being like, hey, you specifically, I'm making you responsible for this um, can really get a lot in terms of mobilization and organizing because it's easy. It's like the bystander effect, right? It's nobody's responsibility because someone will do it. So you really have to point out and say you are doing this um, and be a little bit assertive and you can get a lot done that way. That's amazing advice. I'm learning so much. Oh, especially strike law. I'm like, whoa, wait yeah, a second. A cool topic. Um, we did shut some places down. School and studied strike law. <laughs> Tell us about that. You shut places down. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so there are very specific because, you know, we were in a legal strike position. That means we, that's our legal rights. We, you know, Workers before us have fought really hard to have that right. Um, and we were in a legal position. So there's legal strikes and there's illegal strikes. So an illegal strike is just when everyone's like, we're out of here, we're done, we're frustrated, we're striking. But a legal strike is you've gone through all the correct proceedings, you've you know, you've done your bargaining, you've took your vote, you've done it in the proper timelines. Um, and then we're in a legal position. So that means we're not doing anything wrong. And there's a ton of surprise. There's not, I mean, it's not surprisingly, but there's a ton of laws around what that looks like. For example, um, one of them that I found that just kind of stuck with me is you can't block traffic, but you can have people cross the crosswalk for five minutes straight. And then you can let one car go by and then you can have another line of people across the crosswalk for another five minutes. So it's very specific things that you can and cannot do. And those are some of the tactics that you do to apply pressure. So, you know, that way you can back up traffic, but you're still in a legal position doing, you know, no harm. Um, you know, of course you would let ambulance through and such like that, but there's a lot of tactics that you can use in a strike. Nice. That's such a good idea. Oh, the crosswalk. I feel like <laughs> I'm like thinking about my workplace now and like, oh, where's the best places? Um, were there any other really uh, like unique tactics that you heard PSAC members from around the country using? Um, I want to say we didn't really get to a point of really utilizing those. I think because it had been so long, a lot of people were really timid. Um, and you can't just go from really timid to shut a place down. So we were kind of building our way up to that. And I think if person I love the strike personally so I wish it went a little bit longer for my own selfish needs because I was having a lot of fun but I understand that it's not ideal for most people involved um which is why we didn't That's but okay. I'm a freak like you I'm like <laughs> yeah. ants and first I'm ants and first strike I'm ants yeah. and for it so we were starting to ramp up to that and I think if we had gone a couple more days we would have started shutting more things down we had some um test groups on certain picket lines that we were starting to test different strategies out on. Um, one of them definitely was, you know, the traffic. Um, we started reading letters and really slowing and checking every single person's uh, uh, credentials that wanted to go into the building. Uh, one of them was like, we blocked the trash. Um, in Nanaimo, we actually blocked the trash and the truck driver wouldn't cross our picket line to pick up the trash for the whole building. Um, genius <laughs> so there was and then um in victoria here there was a really good one where i think don't quote me on this but i think it was the military was trying to get some supplies in um and they quoted it as essential material and then when the truck driver got there he realized it wasn't actually essential materials and he turned everything around and left um so those are the you know there's there just is a ton that you can do in strikes that are 
not aggressive, but they really inconvenience the employer. And I think that's really the key is the inconvenience. The more inconvenient you can be, the better. That's so true. I got the privilege of joining Actra, who is, I'm pretty sure, still on strike. That would be oh my goodness, like 500 days now. So they protested um, outside because again, really disparate uh, population of folks scattered throughout. So um, in Toronto, the advertising awards took place at um, my employer. So where I work. So I thought, oh, well, I have to go. Someone from my union has to be present, you know, out front of my mm-hmm. own workplace for this actor protest. And it was incredible. I mean, of course, actors, right? They were, you know, it wasn't a massive number of people, but they were so like, even though maybe like 50 people, a little more, definitely under 100, they still took up so much space with their like (laughs) antics and their loudness. And they all dressed as if they were attending a funeral. They gave um, speeches to, uh, you know, the death of their career, which was hilarious. (laughs) They um, absolutely booed every single person who walked into my workplace where these advertising awards were being taken place as if these people were walking down a booing red carpet. It was fabulous. And they would immediately, if they knew the person, they would scream their name and they would, you know, they would call them out. They would make it personal. Um, I was so impressed. Um, they were very mighty for a little group. And uh, I was like, oh, back pocket, remember these things. Uh, (laughs) I mean, after 500 days, that's incredible to have that much energy still. I can't, I couldn't imagine. Well, and I think at that time it was, maybe I'm overestimating. I For sure at that time it was 430 something, but I'm just trying to do the math since that time. I don't think uh, I'll go past three weeks. I think that's three weeks is enough. <laughs> we only did a week and a half and um, I wish it went a little bit longer, but three weeks would have been my max where I would have been having fun. <laughs> so you guys only were out for a week and a half. For some reason, it felt longer, but I blame the media for that dragging out sort of, you know, labor news in this country is really, I'm going to say it fucking sad and (laughs) there's very few outlets unless they're independent um that talk about labor news media in this country and it made it feel like the you know these workers are taking so long like how dare they but when public opinion was polled the public was behind psac and i think that's really important do you know much about how PSAC was able to garner that public support? Or do you just think like every worker's pissed off right now? You know, I would like to think that just kind of everyone's pissed off. We're in a like, crisis all across the country. Everything's more expensive, Ontario and BC especially, uh, which is, again, a, where the majority of Canadians live. So I think it's a really relatable thing. Um, and it was really hard watching the news because I didn't represent what was going on and what people were feeling. Um, And I had members come to me being like very disheartened after watching the news. And, you know, I, after that, I took specific strategies um, 
to support members and showing that there was a lot of public support. You know, we had um, places dropping off pizza and donuts and coming out and saying hi. Um, So I made a point to really make sure that every time that happened, I shared that with everyone to say, you know, look how much support we have. Uh, Because there was a ton of public support. And anywhere that there wasn't, because we, again, we do have some smaller communities, um, we sent reinforcement people there to go and stand with them to kind of bring them and show them that they're not alone. And that was a really powerful thing to do in that time. Um, And it's also kind of a a rant for me, but, you know, who does it serve and who does it not serve? So who owns the media? What does it serve them to run these stories and what kind of light? There's the same reason we're not really taught about labor history in schools. And yet it's such a huge piece of Canadian history and how we are where we are today and economically as well. That's so true. And especially, you know, circling back to just like workers are pissed off. I've been watching the inflation rate along with the unemployment rate because, you know, people often forget like we need a reserve of unemployed people in order for this whole system to work. And um, traditionally what happens, you know, within uh, how our societies function within capitalism is that when the employment rate goes up, usually the banks will lower the inflation rate because inflation really is a punishment on workers. It doesn't really affect the owning rentier class. And when I say rentier class, like I'm talking about, you know, people who own lots of fucking property and assets (laughs) and like unemployment just went up. There's more unemployed people. And I naturally thought, oh, the Bank of Canada will lower interest rates a little bit. No, they raised them. They didn't even keep them the same. They raised them. And I just laugh because, of course, we're going to vote for strikes. Like, of course. Mm -hmm. And especially in the public sector. The other day, I had the absolute tragedy of having to visit a service Ontario. But those workers were amazing. Did I have to wait three hours to get to that worker? Yes. But all I could think of is like, this is a ploy. Like this is a deep psyop. So I think, oh, well, it's easier to get all my stuff at the bank. Look how quick it is for them. Why don't we just privatize it? You know, like, like healthcare, that looming discussion. I, you know, it's not the that's not the worker's fault that you have to wait three hours. That's not on them. That's an employer issue where they have understaffed people. Exactly. And it's not like the employee enjoys that either. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I, all that's all I think. Like, and I think I can thank my union experience for teaching me what management rights are. Because in almost everyone's collective agreement, there's a nice little section called management rights. And one of the greatest tactics we have in our always be grieving arsenal is when there's something in your collective agreement that nothing really fits under, but your workplace isn't functioning as it should, you can put it under management and rights. And you can say your manager and your employer in turn is not doing their job. And that's all I could think of when I was waiting three hours for my identification, um, you know, was the fact that like this is the employer's duty to make this better and a more efficient system, let alone the fact that the Service Canada is put into a Canadian tire, which confiscated my backpack, which had all my documents in it. So I had to now carry all my documents, which I already, the reason I was at Service Ontario was because I had to replace everything in my life that I had just lost. So not only do I have like nothing on me, 
I get up there, I do all my stuff. I have to pay money that I don't have. (laughs) And I was Mm -hmm. like, this is the worst system ever, but I will never give in to the fact that I don't want this to be public. It has to stay public. It has to say public. Um, this is a little bit of a side tangent uh, that has a point. So my I, I study um, psychology and sociology. My major is in those two. Um, and I study these systems. And that's what my degree uh, is in. And they had to redo the program recently in, in sociology specifically because it was so sad <laughs> that students were getting too depressed taking the courses. So they had to turn it into... A p- more positive outlook. So I kind of did take that away. So besides the 90% doom and gloom that I feel most of the time, I feel the other 10%, I feel really privileged to live in a time where I can make the change for the sy- in the systems that I want to see because things are so bad right now that that's the most likely time that things will change into something different. So we're in a very critical time in our in our history timeline with capitalism uh, and where we're at because the things that we do today are going to have the largest impact on our society because we're so turbulent. And I think that 10% of the time when I think like that, I get really empowered because you're right. I don't want to privatize system um, because we've seen what that does and how that happens. So now is the time that we can speak up and say stuff. And as young workers, I think, you know, we're the ones who have to live in the society that's coming up. So we should be the ones trying to make the decisions for it that we want to see and we want to live in. That's amazing. This is a good speech. You're going to go far, girl. I can feel it. I can feel it. All right. 10% of the time. <laughs> of the time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> See? Just said. I think, yeah, I mean, that's exactly the nail on the head. Same for me. It makes me feel like, uh, you know, there's some revolutionary potential there. I think it has mm-hmm. to kind of get to this point. Um more before strikes. anything happens, more strikes, more grievances, more yeah. making uh, the management watch list. Um, more stirring the pot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so normally I like to end off the episode with some really weird, strange questions. I have some consistent questions, which I will finish off the episode as I traditionally do with until I get bored of that. I mean, we've recorded a few guests now and now I'm already like, I got to change things up. But I will ask because you're out in BC, uh, I've never been to BC. I so desperately want to go. What do I do? Am I hiking? Am I kayaking? Top five outdoorsy things to do in BC. Uh, yeah, all outside. BC really is about the outdoors. Um, and I'm going to speak to the coastline specifically. Um, the interiors a little bit different because BC is quite large, but most of our population is down, you know, Vancouver, Victoria coastline. Uh, and I, I love the beach, you know, like you said, uh, kayaking, hiking, we have some great mountain ranges too. Um, usually me and my friends will do, uh, an overnight hike up in the mountains. Um, which is beautiful to do. Um, Wait a second. Like you're hiking up to a mountain and you're waking up on the mountain. Yeah. That sounds amazing. Oh my God. You can go uh, surfing and you can go skiing in the same day here. If you were really dedicated. I literally can hear a seagull in the background of your audio. Oh my God. I'm getting the teleporter fired up. (laughs) 
which also means you get to see some of our uh, favorite animal, which is whales, specifically killer whales. Uh, I wonder if Gladys, the yacht turner, has yeah. come to visit you folks. Uh, I can only hope. Um, yeah, that's uh, incredible. You know, it's extremely rude. I have never seen an orca whale. Um, it's very upsetting to me. And I've never seen dolphins. We have dolphins here, too. Um, we catch the ferry in between um, Vancouver and like Victoria or Nanaimo, and it's an hour and a half. Very often, you'll see whales on there and dolphins, and I've never seen a dolphin, and I'm pretty upset about it. Oh yeah, you may. I should have said orca. That's the proper term. I apologize to orcas mm -hmm. out there. Um, well, then you bring up a great question. I, you know, seals. Then you definitely have seals. Yes, yes, definitely. And I have seen. I have seen whales before. Um, I've gone out in a helicopter. My sister took me out for my birthday to some hot springs out in Tofino. Um, I did get to see some whales then, which was fantastic. Hot springs. Add that to the list. Oh my <laughs> goodness, what a bounty! Um, when I was a kid, I firmly thought I was going to move out to BC to become a marine biologist. Why did every millennial grade four child want to be a marine biologist? I don't That's know. That's what my best friend is doing. She's in school well, for that right now. She's in the right place. But I wanted to study otters. Uh, and they're oh, still so my favorite cool. animal to visit at the zoo. I love a good otter. We, we do have a good amount of otters here. You can see them um, just when you go walk down to the beach. They come on the docks and stuff all the time. They're quite playful. Oh my gosh. Okay. So now I feel like it's such a leading question. So this is the question that I ask everyone. Um, and I feel like I might know the answer. So the question is always, what would you rather? You have to choose. You can combine if you want, but curl up with a good book or go for a hike and an adventure. I am an adventure type person. I love a good book, but um, I'll take adventure over a book. I'm, I get too distracted. <laughs> All right. Well, then tell us your favorite hiking spot in BC, uh, unless it's like a deep secret, in which case we will protect it and you do not have to say. So your second favorite spot in that case. <laughs> um, uh, we have the Strathcona Mountain Range on BC. Um, last year, we did the fifth highest mountain on the island, which is actually a real mountain with like snow caps and stuff. Uh, and that was quite a beautiful hike. There's lots of blueberries and, you know, great lakes. Um, and then and of course, on the coastline, we have our East Souk area, which is where you find, uh, I did the Juan de Fuca a couple of years ago. That's a three-day, four-day hike um, on the coastline. And we have our West Coast Trail, too. Oh, yes. I've heard about the West Coast Trail and how absolutely intense it is. I haven't made it to that one yet, but I will one day. <laughs> I know that people will try to do it like straight. I mean, they'll sleep for a minimal amount of time, but to see how fast they can do it. And I'm like, but you could also just enjoy the scenery. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the only way to get you out of there is helicopter lifted. It's quite a serious uh, trek. So I wouldn't rush myself out there. Uh, breaking a leg is not fun. <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> well, Jessica, thank you so much for letting me talk your ear off and ask you a million questions. Uh, you've had certainly an interesting time at PSAC, and I can't wait to see what next you do. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, feel free to hit me up anytime. I always got too much information on the go. Oh, we will. Thanks so much. <laughs> okay. Thanks, listeners. Please reach out to us because we want to hear from you, our union siblings and our community comrades, so we can learn and grow together. Let us know what issues you want us to explore. This is a conversation and we want your participation. 
You can email us at hello at pyc-opsu.org. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and Facebook. All the links can be found in the podcast bio. And please share and subscribe. See you next time.